السلام عليكم ورحمة الله give me sound check before we begin everyone hear me okay okay جزاك الله خير بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله رب العالمين اللهم صل وسلم وبارك على نبينا محمد وعلى آله وصحبه أجمعين أما بعد so welcome to a, uh, another session of QP and uh, inshallah ta'ala today uh, we are going to continue with the tafsir of Surah Al-Alaq and I hope that inshallah ta'ala within the next uh, couple of lessons or so we'll have finished uh, with the tafsir of Surah Al-Alaq. So uh, much of what we were discussing in terms of like the you know the core messages of the surah, uh, the, the foundation of the surah, the main theme of the surah, we discussed over the last two or three weeks. And that is uh, particularly in those five uh, initial verses that we that we said that began the revelation of the Quran that Allah Azza wa began the revelation of the Quran with and we went through them in, in quite sufficient detail and we mentioned a number of points concerning them uh, but generally speaking Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala as we've seen over those five verses is reminding us of a, a number of his blessings and as some of the scholars of tafsir mentioned that those blessings point all of them back to himself subhanahu wa ta'ala they speak about Allah Azza wa either within his lordship or within his names and attributes or within his right to be worshipped alone subhanahu wa ta'ala or when it comes to the issue of knowledge because as we know all of that knowledge comes from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala so in uh, various ways right in various ways uh, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is also mentioning the importance of worshipping him and he does it through this amazing act of worship uh, and that is the act of worship of seeking knowledge and spreading knowledge and then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala speaks about the blessings that are uh, that are pertinent to that uh, particular uh, particular act of worship and that is the qalam and the uh, the blessing of being able to write and record and relay information in the written form and that in itself is something which we you know we spent a great deal of time speaking about and we mentioned a number of the statements of Sheikh Muhammad al-Amin al-Shalqiti ta'ala before him Ibn al-Qayyim rahimahullah amongst others from the scholars of tafsir when they spoke about the blessings and the benefits that we take from uh, or, or the benefits rather that we take and the lessons that we take from those blessings that Allah Azza wa mentions as well as generally what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala speaks about within those first first few uh, verses. So, uh, last week we discussed in, in detail verses 4 and 5 in which Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says Allah Azza wa taught with a pen and he taught man that which they did not know before and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in, in mentioning, uh, as we said, as in mentioning not only the blessing of being created and that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala created us and fashioned us and gave us from his blessings, Allah azza mentioned some of his greatest blessings in these verses and that is the blessing of knowledge, the blessing of being able to write. And no doubt that we can't worship Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala except through that, uh, through that action of knowledge. And we're not able to come closer to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala except and unless we know the manner in which to do that. And that is through the knowledge that we seek. And one of the ways that the knowledge is preserved and passed down from generation to generation is through the, uh, you know, through writing and through recording that information. And especially in, in later times, I mean like after the first two or three generations of the Muslims, that became, uh, if you like, more, uh, more important or more necessary than even the uh, spoken form that the early generations relied upon. And that's because when you know the Muslim empire began to expand, when you had people who didn't have that same level of knowledge, and then you had people with ulterior motives and hidden agendas entering into the fold of Islam, what was considered to be 
a, uh, an issue of trust and integrity, uh, integrity and trustworthiness, and that is the verbal form, you could no longer rely on that. And so now things began to be recorded. And so after, you know, like even in, in, in for example, the field of hadith, after the scholars have started to record the narrations of the Prophet وسلم, and of the companions and the early scholars, whether that's in the books of hadith like al-Bukhari or Muslim, or whether it's in the books of tafsir, uh, such as the early collections of tafsir, for example, of al-Tabari and Ibn Abi Hatim when it comes to, and Abdul Razak when it comes to the science of tafsir, or whether it's in the books of Aqidah of Allah and before him, uh, others who came and, and also uh, wrote in, in not only their works of, of Aqidah, but they wrote them with chains of narration, as was the way of the of the past scholars. In fact, that lasts even like, you know, for four, five hundred odd years, you will have still still have scholars too that, that, that do that with their chain of narration going back, right? Ibn Abdul Bar. Rahimahullah Ta'ala often does that in his books and he's a 5th, 6th century scholar, Al-Khatib Al-Baghdadi, uh, again from that era and around that time period of the 5th or 6th century of Muslim scholars, does the same way he mentions his chain of narration all the way back and if you read some of their books, uh, you will find this. And so, but that becomes less necessary in the sense that now it's all being recorded, right? And it's something which is mentioned within the books. And so the Isani that we have, for example, today, the chains of narration that take us back to Al-Imam Al-Bukhari, for example, or Imam Muslim or At-Tirmidhi or any of those early scholars of Islam, it is you know, kind of like more just a, uh, you know, if you like, it's just something which is from the benefits of seeking knowledge. It's from, it's from the adornments of knowledge, if you like. It's not really something which is necessary anymore because that knowledge has been recorded. It's already in in the book of Sahih al-Bukhari. Whether I have any jazah that takes me back all the way to the Prophet or I don't, it doesn't really make a difference in any way because those hadith have now been preserved. But the point is that our religion becomes, you know, it is what it is because of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala giving us the ability to record that knowledge and for it to be passed down then from generation to generation. And clearly the way that that was done earlier, before the printing press, before printing became so widespread, before it's something which people can really take on because that takes a very long time before it starts to, to really spread across the world. Uh, the way that they would do that is that they would have manuscripts and that the scholars would come or that you would have scribes that would come and they would copy it out by hand. And because they copied it out by hand, that's why you have sometimes errors or you have differences in some editions of a book that you have, for example, a word that someone may have misspelt, right? And so one of the things that the scholars used to do is of old is that they would have students reading to them and they would correct the written editions that they had before them, right? Just even now with the printing presses and everything being electronic, people still make mistakes when they electronically type a hadith or electronically type books. And so you will find mistakes. And so one of the things that the scholars even today will do is if you're going to read, for example, one of the collections of hadith, or you're going to read, for example, uh, you know, like, I don't know, one of the uh, early, early, early works of, of tafsir or, or something else, they will actually correct the edition that you have, if that scholar has read there and he studied it himself, he will correct it for you. And he will say, no, actually that's a misspelling, or actually that's a mistake here. And one of the famous scholars of hadith of his time and his generation, Al-Imam Al-Mizzi, Rahimahullah Ta'ala, the famous author of the uh, encyclopedia of hadith called Tuhfatul Ashraf. And Imam Al-Mizzi, it is said that his students would come to him, Rahimahullah, and they would bring different editions of what, for example, Bukhari or Muslim or whatever, that they'd found written manuscripts and they would read to him and he would correct them. And he would say, no, this manuscript here is more correct and that one is incorrect and that's a mistake and that's a error and that's, for example, a slip of the hand and so on and so forth. Until his students used to say to him, yeah, Sheikh, we don't need to read these manuscripts. You're the manuscript, right? Because it's all in your mind and, in, and you've memorized it and you, and you know it so well. But that's something which the scholars have always done as well. 
but it's something which is then recorded and it's something which has been uh, preserved for us over time and from generation to generation. That's not speaking about something which we've hinted at before when you spoke, for example, in, about the life of Imam al-Tabari and others, about how much of our knowledge has been lost over time, how many books that we hear about or that we read about or that are mentioned in the works of other earlier scholars are lost to time. They've been lost because they were destroyed or they were lost in a fire or they were lost due to war. Or they were lost for one reason or another. But we know, for example, that they that they that that a book was written uh, on that subject or on that topic, right? But where that book is now and where it is and and what happened to it over time, Allah Allah knows best. But it's something which Allah Subhanahu wa Taala has given to us to preserve our religion from time to time. So before we continue with uh, today's lesson and, and verse number six onwards, we had a research question last week. Actually, before we do the research question, uh, I also made a request last week that we, um, you know, we kind of like gather uh, different uh, references, different books that we come across about to do with generally the Quran, the Book of Allah Subhanahu wa Taala, and we make a type of database for ourselves that then kind of becomes like a reference point for us, so that everything in the English language that's written or can be found out there. Uh, to do with the book of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala with the Quran, whether that's as we said tafsir, or whether that's to do with the translation of the Quran, or whether it's to do with the Quranic sciences, that we kind of have a database together. And alhamdulillah, we've managed to put that up on our telegram uh, group uh, for those of you that are following us, and for those of you that aren't, then inshallah you can start to follow us. And it's, it's very simple, and, and Sister Salan Jazallah Khair, she uh, worked very hard and she uh, came up, came up with you know what whatever the system is, and it's a, a relatively easy system to use. You just fill in a form, and then that form the, the data gets captured onto the database. And so I want to encourage you every time or any time that you come across something, to just kind of like you know give it a couple of minutes or make a note of it so that you can come to it later or bookmark it. For example, if it's something on your on your computer or your phone, and then you come to it later and you just fill in that, and that over time. Inshallah Ta'ala will give us this kind of um, reference point which which will benefit us all greatly including myself because one of the things that we I think all of us struggle with when we want to research something or look at something is to actually see what's out there and clearly there are always new works that are being published and printed and authored on these subjects and translated and so it's always good to have something which is an up-to-date thing and I think that that's a nice thing that all of us Inshallah Ta'ala can be part of and it's Inshallah Ta'ala Sadaqah Jariya for us because when other people come to use it, benefit from it Inshallah Ta'ala then that's something which we will also Inshallah get the reward for. But we had a, a research question from last week and that question was concerning uh, when Allah Subh'anaHu Wa Ta'ala speaks about the Qalam, right, the pen uh, and he's, he's just speaking about the normal pen, right? every pen that's used to written, but there is the pen, and that is the pen that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala created. And we said that one of the discussions that some of the scholars with tafsir have, and there is an aqidah point as well, but some of the, uh, one of the discussions that some of the scholars with tafsir have is concerning what is the first creation that Allah Azzawajal created. Right? What is the first creation that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala created? And so I wanted to see if uh, anyone had come across anything, right? And there's a number of opinions uh, that you will find. So if anyone has uh, anything that they came up with, then if you can please uh, post that now into the comment section, uh, just to see the differences of opinion. And, and likewise, if you came across any of the evidences that they had for any of those positions. Uh, and these are like, you know, one of the things that you'll find in the books of Tafsir is that the scholars will go on and out onto these tangents. Right, when they think that it is necessary to do so because clearly the book of Allah contains issues of aqeed and contains issues, issues of Arabic language and issues of seerah and issues of hadith and so on. Everything is found 
it finds its essence uh, and its its if you like its foundation in the Quran. And so, because it's there, you will often find some scholars will go more into more detail, some less. Right? Some will will go onto tangents more, and some will will stick to just basically what they need to do when it comes to tafsir. And so, you have different approaches amongst the scholars. But this was the question: What is the first creation that Allah Azza wa Jal created? So one of the opinions and positions uh, and the reason why it's asked and, and mentioned here is because a number of the scholars said that it was the pen, right? That it was the pen, right? So Sumir, Jazakallah Khair, um, you've mentioned a few there, right? So uh, some of the scholars said it is the pen, right? And just so that we can understand what it is, the early scholars or the scholars, the opinions of the scholars that are based on, on, on proof, right? Based on proof, um, based on proof is is three opinions three positions that are based on proof and then you have a number of others that aren't actually based on any evidence from the quran or the sunnah but there are some of them are like just uh, common positions that that, that, that are mentioned uh, and and some of them are for example false positions that are mentioned as well um, but three that are based upon evidence the first of them is that it is pen the pen that the first question of allah was the pen and this was the position that was chosen by al-imam al-tabari as well as other scholars from amongst the scholars of tafsir, such as uh, Ibn al-Jawzi, and they based that upon a hadith of the Prophet وسلم, It's the hadith that is in a Tirmidhi and Abu Dawood of Ubadat ibn Samit, عن, that the Prophet said وسلم, القلم, that the first thing that Allah created was the pen, and he said to it, Uktub, write. And the pen asked, Oh Allah, and what should I write? And Allah Azza wa Jal said, Write down the decree of everything until the hour, until Yom Al Qiyamah, until the hour is established. Right? And that's an authentic hadith, it's collected in a Tirmidhi and Abu Dawood. Based upon the hadith, a number of the scholars took the position that it is the pen. Right? And as I said, Imam Al Tabari seems to favor this position. Other scholars, such as Ibn Al Jawzi, also chose this position. And they are not the only two. It is a position that you will find a number of the scholars having supported. However, because there are other narrations that also speak about something similar, and in those narrations, you have an addition, and that addition being that when Allah commanded him to do so, or for example, when Allah commanded the pen to write in that way, he was above the throne subhanahu wa ta'ala. Right? And others, for example, said, and there are other narrations, as we will see, that also uh, allude to the fact that Allah had already created water, that his throne was above water. So because of those hadith and those narrations, those are the other two opinions that you will find that are based on evidence. The second opinion being that it was the throne. The throne was the first creation of Allah Azza wa Jalla. That's the position that was chosen by uh, Ibn Taymiyyah rahimahullah ta'ala and Al-Imam Ibn Al-Qayyim rahimahullah. Right? And as I mentioned to you last week, for those of you that were interested, Ibn Al-Qayyim in his Nuniya actually has verses of poetry right? that he actually mentions uh, concerning this. He says, rahimahullah ta'ala, وَالنَّاسُ مُخْتَلِفُونَ فِي الْقَلَمِ الَّذِي كُتِبَ الْقَضَاءُ بِهِ مِنَ الدَّيَّانِ هَلْ كَانَ قَبْلَ الْعَرْشِ أَوْ هُوَ بَعْدَهُ قَوْلَانِ عِنْدَ أَبِي الْعَلَاءِ الْحَمَذَانِ وَالْحَقُّ أَنَّ الْعَرْشَ قَبْلُ لِأَنَّهُ عِنْدَ الْكِتَابَةِ كَانَ ذَا أَرْكَانِ So he says that there's two famous positions as to uh, when, when the pen was written, was it before the throne or after the throne? And he says the position that it was created, the pen was after the throne, is a stronger position because of what we find within the Sunnah. So Ibn Taymiyyah, rahimahullah, Shaykh al-Islam, Ibn al-Qayyim, his student, chose that position amongst other scholars, and they are not the only ones as well. The third position is that it's uh, referring to water. Water was the first creation. 
and they base that also and that is a position of a number of the early scholars of, of Islam and it's said to be the position that was chosen by Abdullah bin Mas'ud radiyallahu anhu from his companion and it was chosen by a number of the scholars as well such as Badruddin al-Aini and amongst them others that chose the position of it being uh, being water. Those scholars who say there is a throne or water, what do they base it upon? They also base it upon a number of narrations. From them is the narration that you will find in Sahih Muslim of Abdullah ibn Amr ibn al-As radiyallahu anhumah that he said that I heard the Prophet say sallallahu alayhi wa sallam katab allahu maqadir al-khala'iq qabla an yukhlaq al-samawati wal-ard bi khamsina alfa sana qala wa arshuhu ala al-ma' He said that Allah Azza wa Jal wrote down the decree of everything before he created the heavens and the earth by 50,000 years and his throne was above the water or on the water his throne was on on water so because this hadith speaks about the arsh and he speaks about the water then some of the scholars chose one and some of the scholars chose the other that it is water that was there first or the arsh that was there first and as you can see that even the hadith clearly mentions the arsh and the water being before the pen but it doesn't differentiate as to which of them were there first but Ibn Taymiyyah rahimahullah ta'ala seems to uh, kind of hint or kind of allude towards the position of it being the throne. And similar to it is the, uh, is the narration in Al-Bukhari of Imran ibn Hussein radiyallahu anhu that he said the Prophet said sallallahu alayhi wa sallam that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala was first and there was nothing except him subhanahu wa ta'ala and then his, his arsh was upon the water. His arsh was upon the water. And again, the hadith seems to mention the two together. But again, it doesn't show one above the other one above the other and so and the third position of those who said that it was water is they mentioned a narration of um of ibn mas'ud radiyallahu an which ibn khuzayma al-imam ibn khuzayma from the early scholars of hadith mentions in his book on tawheed kitab al-tawheed that ibn mas'ud radiyallahu an says uh, concerning the verse of allah azza wa jal huwa alladhi khalaqakum min turabin afwan huwa alladhi khalaqa lakum ma fil ardi jami'a he is the one who created for you for you everything that is within the earth and then he ascended above the heavens and he created uh, and he created the seven heavens he said in his commentary that indeed Allah was uh, his um, that indeed Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's throne was on water and he created nothing before he created water right and that's the position therefore that you have of some other scholars as well so uh, the point of this being anyway that this is uh, these are some of the narrations that are mentioned so the stronger position in this issue and Allah Azza knows best is that it is either water or it is the throne and some of the scholars said that we can't differentiate between the two and so therefore we say that both of them Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala created before the pen they are from his first creations whether one is before the other though or the other one is before uh, you know if, if water is before the throne or the throne before water or they were created together at the same time only Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala knows because there is no authentic narration that is mentioned concerning that and Allah azawajal knows best. So that's in regards to um, in regards to what is mentioned concerning that particular topic and that particular issue. So let us go on inshallah ta'ala to the next verse and that is verse number six. So when it comes to our tafsir, we're now on verse number six, and that is the statement of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, Kalla inna insana la yatra, but man exceeds all bounds. Now it's very interesting because the first five verses, as we know, were revealed together and they were revealed at the very beginning of Islam. And then you have 
the remainder of the surah that is revealed after some time. Because according to the scholars, you know, even before the rest of Surah Alaq is revealed, other parts of other surahs like Surah Al-Muzzammil, like Surah Al-Muddathir and others will be revealed. And some of the scholars even said Surah Fatiha. Right? So we mentioned, I think last week or the week before, that, that question of what was the first revelation that Allah sent down. And some of the scholars said Fatiha and some of them said uh, Muddathir and some of them said it was Surah Al-Alaq. Right? And we said that the strong position is that Surah Al-Alaq is the first of that revelation. And what is meant by Surah Al-Muddathir being the first revelation is meaning after the revelation ceased. The first thing that was then revealed after that initial pause was Surah Al-Muddathir. And those scholars who said it was Surah Fatiha, what they meant by that is that it's the first complete Surah that was revealed in its entirety. Whereas Surah Alaq, as we know, only five verses are revealed and then Allah Azza wa reveals other parts of the Quran before he comes back to Surah Al-Alaq. So therefore we have clearly that, um, you know, that, that kind of uh, space in time that pause in terms of the revelation of the verses of this particular surah but also then it shows you why Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala then moves on to another topic and that is that Allah is after mentioning the first five verses that speak about knowledge and learning and therefore coming to worship Allah and know Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala well verse six all the way to the end of the surah now will do is speak about the response of the people of Quraysh when the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam brought that knowledge to them when he brought that information to them, when he brought that revelation of Allah to them, when he brought to them the verses of the Qur'an that were given to him in Hira, how do they respond? What is their reaction? How do they treat the Prophet How do they respond and react to these verses of the Qur'an? And in order for that then to resonate with the Prophet and the Muslims and for them to be able to see it, perhaps Allah knows best that from the wisdoms of their being that gap, is so that it's something which they could experience firsthand, see and witness with their own eyes, hear with their own ears, understand and comprehend with their own minds and hearts because they see it around them. And now it is a reality rather than it just being something which Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala mentions, which, uh, which the Muslims don't necessarily accept, right? Because who would necessarily accept that, for example, if I, I don't know, I, I want to do something or I make a decision or I change a way, that is good. And it's based on principles that are good that people accept and there's nothing to harm anyone. But it's about goodness and it's about piety and it's about, uh, it's about righteousness that people would turn against me and become my enemy. And that's why there's an amazing, you know, the, the hadith that we mentioned of, of Khadija radiallahu anha when she takes the Prophet after the first revelation to see her cousin Warqa ibn Nawfal. There's that amazing wording that should make us all pause and stop that this is the Prophet and this is how much he expected or how, if you like, how much he did not expect people to turn against him. When he says, when Waraka says to him, if only I was younger that I could support you, when your people exile you, kick you out, ask you to leave Mecca. And he says, would they ask me to leave? Would they tell me to go and leave Mecca? My, I live here, my parents lived here, my grandparents. They are, not only are they from Quraysh, but the Prophet is from the noblest of the clans of Quraysh and his forefathers and, and, and grandfather and great-grandfather are from the leaders and the chieftains of the tribe of Quraysh and from the custodians of Mecca. How can they possibly tell me to leave and ask me to go and outside and live and, and live elsewhere except in the city of Mecca? Even the Prophet is surprised and so perhaps and Allah knows best that if they were to be given those types of, of indications or that this is how they would there would be a response, perhaps the Prophet wouldn't really be able to understand it because it's not something which he's yet experienced. But now after he has experienced that, when his own uncle Abu Lahab stands against him and Abu Jahl is against him and the vast majority of Quraysh 
are against him from his own family, from his own kith and kin, from his own tribes people, from his own neighbours and people that lived with him and grew up with him and know and attested to his righteousness and his truthfulness sallallahu alayhi wasallam. Now, the Prophet understands. Now, it is something when Allah reveals these verses, you can understand the response. And so when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala then mentions at the very end, the solution of how to overcome this response, how to deal with the negativity and the oppression, the transgression, the injustice that is carried out by the Quraysh. Now the Prophet and the initial group of believers that are with him from the companions عنهم, they are better able to respond to that. And so this is these verses onwards from 6 onwards now until the end of the surah will speak about the reaction. So you have the blessing of Tawheed, the blessing of knowledge, the blessing of everything that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has revealed. And then what you have is you have the rest of the response that Allah Azza wa will mention in the surah concerning how the Quraysh responded to him. And so Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala begins by mentioning this verse, Kalla inna al-insana la and the num- next number of verses now all related to this single incident and to this single kind of response that even though it may not have all happened at the same time and even though Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala as we will see in this narration that I will now narrate to you is speaking about an individual specifically on the surface there is no doubt that that was the general reaction of the people of Quraysh and that they were all united more or less in the way that they were responding to the Prophet wasallam and to those early Muslims in the city of Mecca. So this narration that speaks to this, uh, these verses, if you like, it is from, uh, even if it is not from the Sabab al-Nuzul, even if it is not from the causes of the revelation of these verses, uh, then it is, uh, it is partly causes of the, the cause of revelation for these verses as well, but it is also a tafsir so that you understand the background as to why these particular verses are being revealed. Because when we read the first five verses and Allah Azza wa is speaking about everything, then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, Kalla inna al-insana la yatgha. Kalla, as we said, is to, is to negate what came, right, or what is to come. It is as if Allah Azza wa is saying, no, nay, rather, except, but. And then Allah Azza wa says, man exceeds all bounds. So this hadith is the hadith of Abu Hurairah, radiyallahu anhu, collected in Sahih Muslim. That he says that Abu Jahl used to say, how dare Muhammad, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, come in front of us and pray. Right, in public, because as we know, the Prophet ﷺ would come, he would stand in the, by the Kaaba and he would pray during the day and during the night. And the Prophet ﷺ wasn't afraid or shy or embarrassed to come and pray in front of the chieftains of Quraysh. And as we know, the chieftains of Quraysh would often hold court, they would often sit with one another, they would often discuss with one another in uh, around the Kaaba, in its shade and around the Kaaba. They would sit there, and that was their way of showing their prestige. Right, it's there, like you know, this is the most important part of the city of Mecca, and that is where they hold court, that is where they converse with one another and decide things with one another. So, for the Prophet to come and notice how in those early days it is only him that comes on a regular basis and stands and prays and recites Quran in front of them, not caring about them, then that was an affront to them because all they're trying to do is intimidate, oppress, transgress. Uh, you know, kind of like take down the Muslims a peg or two. So the Prophet isn't buying this, and instead he's worshiping Allah Azza wa So Abu Jahl in this narration, it is said that he said to the other uh, leaders of Quraysh, the noblemen, "How dare he come whilst we're sitting here? How dare he show his face whilst we're sitting here and come and pray?" 
So he said to them in one in this narration, Sahih Muslim, he asked them, does he dare to come in front of me and pray? And they said yes. So he said by Allah and Al Uzza, by two idols that they used to worship, Allah and Al Uzza. If he comes and does so in front of me, then I will either stamp upon his neck, meaning when he goes into sajda, or I will take the the sand of the from the ground and I will rub it into his face. So he says in this narration, they said that the Prophet ﷺ came and he began to pray. And so Abu Jahl got up to go and stamp on his neck. But as he came closer to the Prophet ﷺ, he started to move backwards, started to step back. And he held out his hands as if he's protecting himself from something or warding something off. So the Prophet ﷺ, when he was asked about this later, he said, For indeed, between me and him was a trench full of fire and full of wings, and full of torment and torture. Wings meaning angels, right? And fire and punishment that was before him. And so he left, right? Abu Jahl sees this. No one else can see this, but he sees this. And the Prophet ﷺ knows what it is, and so he returns. So they said to him, what's wrong with you, Abu Jahl? What happened to you, Abu Jahl? And so Abu Jahl says that I couldn't come any closer. I saw this. This is what I saw before me. The Prophet ﷺ said, had he continued to come closer to me, the angels would have taken him and they would have taken him apart limb by limb. They would have taken him apart limb by limb. And that is when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala revealed these verses, So this is the, uh, the, uh, the if you like, the cause of revelation that is given in the sunnah and the narration is in, is in Sahih Muslim. So the question that I have for you at the beginning of this of the tafsir of this verse, therefore, is when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says kalla, right, and, I, and this is not a research question, just something which I want you to answer now. Kalla, which means no or nay or rather, what is Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala negating? Right? What is Allah Azza wa negating? Because we've done kalla before, right? We did it in Surah Humazan, we did it in Surah Takathun and otherwise. And so when Allah Azza wa says kalla in those surahs, He's negating the con- the concept or the perception that the, the disbelievers have that come before the word kalla in the previous verses. But here Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is saying kalla and everything that is before speaks about Allah's creation, Allah's blessings, the importance of knowledge and so on. So what is Allah Azza wa negating when He says kalla? Is it, how, is it, how is he negating, for example, can it be that he's negating what is mentioned before about knowledge? and about, How do we understand the word kalla? In which context? What is it negating? Right? What is it negating? Can someone tell me? So just looking at that verse, thinking about that verse. When Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says kalla. Okay, so Sanaj says, isn't this a kalla that means haqqan, like in reality? Okay, but all of the kallas, you know, have within that within the meaning the word haqqan, right? Because Allah Azza wa Jalla says, rather, this is how it will be. So there is an element of saying that indeed the truth is not what they consider, but it is the alternative. It is something else, right? The question here is, what is it that Allah Azza wa Jalla is negating, taking away, saying that actually the reality is this? What is Allah Subhanahu wa Taala negating? So the question isn't about the meaning of the word kalla, but what it is that they're being. That's being negated. Kalla, Sumaira says, despite teaching man, not will benefit from the knowledge. Is negating what is after Kalla Hasiyah. Yes, that is what we're looking for, right? So, as Sumaira Hasiyah are saying, actually what is being negated is not what comes before on this occasion, but what comes after. And that is that man, despite all of this, 
all that he's been given rather than using it to benefit and to take from and to find a path to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, kalla. Instead, that Allah is saying they, Allah is negating not the blessing or the knowledge, but the approach of those people to that blessing and knowledge, the way that they responded. Allah is saying no. Rather, what they did instead of taking that knowledge, being humbled by it, benefiting from it, using it as a means of coming closer to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, realizing the path of salvation that Allah has laid out for them, instead what they do is they go and do the opposite. إِنَّ insana la Right, so Allah Azzawajal says that what, what is negating therefore is not the blessing beforehand, but the approach that those people didn't take. Instead, they took a different approach, and that is, إِنَّ insana la yatgha. Right, and that shows that the people who are given knowledge are of two types of people. Right? One is the person who actually wants to learn. Who when knowledge comes to them, they benefit from it. Right? And those are the people who understand the value of knowledge. And they have the humility and the humbleness within themselves to accept that knowledge. Right? Even if, for example, it's someone who studied for 50, 60, 70, 80 years. Right? And they're a scholar, they're an, they're an alim, and they're someone who's from the most knowledgeable people of the earth, for example. Like as we, you know, as, as we will come on to, inshallah, and as we all know from the story of Musa, salam, with Khadr, salam, and he's told, actually, there's someone more knowledgeable than you. What does he do? He humbles himself. And he doesn't say, how, oh Allah, can there be someone more knowledgeable than me when I am one of the greatest, mightiest messengers that you ever sent? But rather, he humbles himself because that is what knowledge should do to you anyway. And irrespective then of your age, of your status, of your qualifications of the position that you may reach because of that knowledge or because of something else. Other than that knowledge, it humbles you enough that you're able to accept it. That's the first person, right? And those are the people who are never satisfied that they have enough. They always want to learn more. They always want to seek more knowledge. They always want to gain more. It doesn't matter if they studied for 30 years or have five PhDs or been all over the world. They still want to learn more. And those are the true scholars. And that's why you have those stories of numerous scholars from amongst the Muslim scholars of old, who, for example, when even on their deathbed, they would come and someone would narrate to them a hadith that they hadn't heard before, or maybe something that they forgot, they would want to write it down. And people would say to them, you're on your deathbed. And they would say, knowledge never finishes. We always continue to learn and seek knowledge and benefit. And so even on that stage and at that time of life, they're still wanting to learn because that is the true person of knowledge. That's the person who really understands the value of knowledge, not someone who thinks that because they read a book or listened to a lecture or you know done a few years of study that that's it, it's, it's, it's all over. But rather it's that desire and that effort that, that's required to keep seeking knowledge and keep learning and keep benefiting from that knowledge. And that's what the true scholars do. That is the mark of someone who is a true scholar that they continue to seek knowledge, continue to learn, continue to study, continue to teach and to write and so on and so forth. That's exactly like, you know, and, and there's a nice statement of Abdullah bin Mas'ud radiyallahu an, uh, and it's also said that Anas bin Malik radiyallahu an, uh, mentioned uh, something similar. They said that there are two types of people that are never satisfied, two types of people that never have enough. The first is the one who seeks knowledge, and the second one is the one who seeks the dunya. Right? The person who seeks the dunya is only about money and wealth and so on. They're never satisfied. Give them a million. As the Prophet said, they want another million. Give them one valley of gold, they want a second valley of gold. Give them one house, they want a second house. Give them two cars, they want three cars. That is because that's what the dunya does. Right? You have that desire to want more and more and more. And so someone who seeks the dunya will always want to seek more. Whereas the one who wants to seek knowledge always wants to seek more knowledge. Those two types of people are never for, never satisfied. One for the dunya, 
and the other one when it comes to seeking knowledge. And that's why you know you have those famous statements of Imam Ahmad Rahimullah amongst other scholars that they used to say that the most the greatest of of optional acts that you can do of worship after for example the fara'id and the obligatory deeds there is nothing that is better than seeking knowledge right there is nothing that is more virtuous than seeking knowledge and that's because of what knowledge should give to you and how it should affect you and change you and so Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is saying that rather than these people benefiting from that knowledge having that attitude they went the opposite way right they're the people of the dunya they aren't satisfied with what they have in the dunya and want more so Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is saying that what they did instead is that they thought because of their arrogance, how can he know more than us? He's younger, he's more junior, he's not a leader. How can he come and tell us what to do and what not to do and tell us that our ways were wrong and tell us that our forefathers were mistaken and change the whole way and setup that we've had for so many generations? That is what Allah Azza wa is negating from them. And so Imam Al-Tabari rahimahullah ta'ala says something similar to this. Uh, when he says, Rahimullah Ta'ala, Kalla, it's as if Allah Azza wa Jal is saying that this is not how man should be. That Allah Subhanahu Wa Ta'ala, after giving him all of these blessings of creating him and fashioning him and giving him knowledge that he never had before, that this person should use all of those blessings to turn away from Allah Subhanahu Wa Ta'ala. Right? and Tagha, look at the word Tagha as well. The word Tagha means to transgress, to go overboard, to go beyond the boundaries that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has said. That person doesn't know when to stop. So that person transgresses and they become more evil and they oppress more and more and more. And the problem with transgression is that it often doesn't stop, right? Oppression leads to more oppression, which leads to more oppression. Evil leads to more evil, which then leads to further evil. Kalla inna insana la yatgha. Allah Azza wa Jalla says in verse number seven, Arra'ahu stagna. When he thinks he is self-sufficient. Istagna is different from Agna. Right? Agna is someone who, or Al-Ghani, the Ghani is the one who is someone who is sufficient or someone who is rich, someone who is self-sufficient, someone who is has enough to, to look after themselves. Istagna is the one who believes that they are self-sufficient. There's a difference. Or the one who seeks to show that they are self-sufficient. That is the difference between Ghina and Istagna. Ghana and Istagna. One is actually one actually means rich, but the scene at the beginning, as is often the case in the Arabic language, when that scene is entered onto a verb, it means to seek, right? Istifham, right? Istifsar. When you add the scene, istashkara. When you add the scene at the beginning of the verb, that scene of the, and the alif at the beginning, the is, actually what they add to the meaning is that you seek, and you try to project or you request. And so what this person is doing, Allah Azza wa Jalla is saying that person has exceeded all bounds. Why? Because they think that they have or that they are self-sufficient. They see themselves. They try to project that they are self-sufficient. And that's what Al-Baghawi rahimahullah ta'ala, Imam Al-Baghawi says, nafsahu He said, This person thinks themselves, sees themselves as being rich and self-sufficient. And obviously the word ghina here isn't just rich as in money rich, but also, and even though that is one of the primary meanings of the word, but also def- like generally, more generally, as being self-sufficient and and some of the scholars you'll see actually gave specific examples of what that means right examples not that that's the exclusive tafsir and the meaning of that verse but examples of how that can play out especially amongst those early people of Quraysh Al-Kalbi said for example this person seeks to project themselves to go from one level higher to another higher level by buying more food by buying more clothes 
right? How do they show that they're rich? Because they immerse themselves even more in the dunya. How does, how does someone show that they're rich and wealthy? And how does the arrogance become displayed in many times, in many cases, is when they flaunt that wealth even more. And they do it in an arrogant way to belittle others, to show that they are better than them because of the wealth that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has given to them. Muqatil said that this verse was revealed concerning Abu Jahl. And that is because when he would have wealth come to him, he would buy more in terms of his clothing, in terms of his food, in terms of the riding beasts and animals that he would ride upon. And that is the transgression that Allah is referring to. These verses, even though they primarily speak about Abu Jahl because we have the hadith as we mentioned in Sahih Muslim of Abu Hurairah some of the scholars said it's not just specifically about Abu Jahl. Some of the scholars said actually it is more general. Rather man, it's every person. Every person can fall into this. Others said, no, it is Abu Jahl that is being referred to. And others said, it is Abu Jahl by way of example. And that is uh, clearly the strongest opinion Allah Azza wa best. Because we, as we mentioned before, when it comes to causes of revelation, it is about the context of the verse and not the specific individual. When Allah subhanahu that's the majority of the cases in the Quran, unless there is an exception to that, because something, for example, is specific to the Prophet for example. But generally speaking, the cause of revelation doesn't restrict the ruling, right? Doesn't restrict the the ruling to that individual. Remember that golden principle in tafsir. The the way that we approach a verse is by the generality of the wording, not by the specific cause for which it was revealed. The general wording Allah is speaking about anyone who transgresses because they see themselves as self-sufficient, even though primarily it was referring to uh, is referring to uh, that person who is Abu Jahl in this particular instance. So that is what Allah Subhanahu wa Taala is speaking about, and some of the scholars gave these examples. So they're giving specific examples of wealth, but actually, as Ibn Kathir Taala and Sheikh Muhammad Al Amin say. Uh, it is actually more general than this. And what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is referring to is someone who, because they see themselves as self-sufficient or wealthy or rich, they, as Ibn Kathir says, it leads them to transgression, to oppression, to arrogance, to go beyond the boundaries that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has set. And that's an important caveat because as we know, many of us or many Muslims have this false concept of wealth, have this false notion or misunderstanding of wealth, and that is that all wealth is evil or that all wealth is, is to be shunned, or that it's not allowed to gain wealth, or it's not allowed for you to be rich, or to even buy from the luxuries of the dunya, if you happen to be rich. And we know that that is not the case, because there were a number of companions, radiallahu anhum, who were extremely wealthy, at least the likes of Uthman, Ibn Affan, Abdul Rahman, Ibn Auf, radiallahu anhum, amongst others. And that's why Sheikh Muhammad al-Amin, al-Sharqiti, rahimahullah ta'ala, or rather his student, in his uh, in his um conclusion to the tafsir or in his completion of the tafsir of, of Sheikh Muhammad Al-Amin rahimahullah ta'ala he said that uh, he said when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala mentions this then it's referring to people in general even though we know that there are people of wealth who don't transgress who don't oppress who are arrogant but rather they're extremely humble right they're people of humility of humbleness people of good and so he said فَيَكُونُ هَذَا مِنَ الْعَامِ الْمَخْصُوصِ so, this, so he said, Rahimahullah Ta'ala, that the word insan then, even though it is a general word, man, but it's actually referring to a certain group of people that fit a certain description, that certain attributes and characteristics apply on them. And those are the people that Allah Azza wa is referring to. And that is why, and that is because he says, because there are people who even though they have wealth, 
They don't oppress, they don't transgress, they don't show the arrogance, they're people of humility and humbleness. They worship Allah, they, they, they use their wealth to come closer to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, they use their wealth for, for causes that are good, that causes that are that, that are that are righteousness within them. And so Allah isn't referring to those people. Those people haven't transgressed, those people haven't gone beyond the bounds that Allah and the limits that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has set for them. So what is it referring to? And that's why he says that the wording of the verse is so important. This person sees themselves. They see themselves as being self-sufficient. This is how they think. So it's a more it's more a state of mind. It's more the way that they act. It's more their character. It's more their personality, it's more their attributes, it's more the way that they deal with others, it's more the show of their arrogance and their and their haughtiness. That is what Allah Azza wa is referring to. And that's why Shaykh Muhammad Al-Amin Rahimahullah Ta'ala says, and that's why you find in the Sunnah that the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam even uh, disliked the one who is poor but is still arrogant, meaning they think that they're better than others or they're they because you know they think that they have something to boast with, at least the people who have wealth and money may have a reason to think that they have they have a right to boast or they have a right to be arrogant because they think that Allah loves them because they've just given them that wealth or because they have some type of favor, they think that they are they have some type of entitlement because of the wealth that they have. But the Prophet even spoke about the one who's poor and is still arrogant. What do you have to be arrogant about? What is it that you're holding over people and lording over people that you don't you have you have nothing to show to them by way of your means of arrogance. And so therefore the Prophet even disliked that. So Shaykh Muhammad Al-Amin Rahimahullah Ta'ala says that it's not just the issue of wealth, but the wording is very precise in the Quran. And that's because people like Abu Jahl, no doubt, and Umayyah ibn Khalaf, and Al-Walid ibn Utbah, and Rabi'ah, and all of those other people, Abu Lahab and others, Umayyah ibn Khalaf, all of them, what they had in common is that they thought that their power, their status, their position as leaders, the wealth that they had, made them better than others. And therefore, they were always would always be in the right, and others would be in the wrong. And that's not something which is unique to the people of Quraysh, but we find in the Quran that it's a very common, uh, it's a very common trait, it's a very common way of thinking and mentality and attitude that Allah Azza wa Jalla mentions even in pre- previous nations. For example, the people of Nuh alayhi salam, right? When the people of Nuh say uh, about about the followers of Nuh alayhi salam, whom aradiluna ra'i. Those people that follow you are the are the lowliest of us. They're the ones who have the least intelligence, meaning that the, the you know the slaves and the weak and the poor. Those are the people that are your followers. And again, they think that they are in the right because they think that they have more wealth, more position, more power, more status, and that therefore gives them the monopoly of what is correct or what is incorrect, of what is how to distinguish between truth and falsehood. So those mistakes that are made by other nations that Allah Azza wa Jalla will then go on to mention elsewhere in the Quran is the same one that Abu Jahl and the people of Quraysh are making here as Allah Azza wa Jalla is referring to them in Surah Al-Alaq. And that is that they think they see themselves as being rich or as being self-sufficient. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala then in verse number 8, he goes on and he says, and he's still speaking about the same uh, context, right? the same stories that we've been mentioning before. إِنَّ إِلَىٰ رَبِّكَ الرُّجْعَىٰ إِنَّ إِلَىٰ رَبِّكَ الرُّجْعَىٰ O Prophet, indeed, all will return to your Lord. Right? So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is saying that these people, كَلَّا إِنَّ الْإِنسَانَ لَا يَطْغَىٰ Rather, man has transgressed, gone beyond the bounds. أَرَّآهُ استغنى Because they see themselves as being wealthy and self-sufficient. 
This is the reality that Allah Azza wa is now mentioning in verse number 8. Inna ila rabbika For rather all of them will return to your Lord. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will resurrect them all, bring them all, hold them all to account. And that is one of the most beautiful concepts of our religion that gives us so much uh, tranquility and so much confidence and so much trust and reliance in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. That we know that even though there is so much oppression and evil that is committed, so many people that are unable to take justice, unable to take and hold on to their rights, how many people are neglected and how many people are downtrodden, how many people are oppressed and their stories and their cases never come to light. You know, some of us or many of us are fortunate if we live in countries where at least you have a recourse to some type of law or justice or some type of complaint system that you can at least attempt to get some of your rights. But there are many across the world and even in these countries that depending on what they're, what they're up against or who they're up against are unable to take some or all of their rights. But how amazing it is that all of those people whose voices are lost and heard, those people are unknown, they're not seen, they're forgotten, they're, 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 they're neglected. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala knows and Allah azza wa hears and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala sees and Allah azza wa records and therefore Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will hold to account. And so how amazing is that concept that even if we never get justice for the wrongs that have been done to us, then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will right those wrongs for us and give us in full that justice on Yawm Al-Qiyamah. But it's a warning also that if we wrong others and oppress others and harm others and we think that we've got away with it, we think that no one knows, we think that we've got away scot-free, that there will be a time and a place where Allah will hold us to account as well. And Allah Azza wa will bring us to, to, to question for the oppression or the injustice that we may have perpetrated against others. And that's why the Prophet ﷺ in the beautiful hadith that you find in Bukhari and other than Bukhari where the Prophet used to say that perhaps some of you come to me with a case, two people, and one of you is more eloquent. Some of you are more eloquent in the way that they put forth their case than the other. And so I, I, agree, to, uh, I agree to their version of the story. I rule in their favor because the Prophet doesn't know the unseen. Right? And this is one of those proofs the Prophet doesn't know the unseen. He's ruling and judging based upon what is apparent. If someone is more eloquent, is able to, for one reason or another, show some type of strength in. In, 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 in putting their own case forward, even though they're in the wrong, the Prophet said, maybe I will rule for you, but know that if you've taken the right of someone else unjustly, then Allah Azza wa Jalla will punish you with it on Yawm Al-Qiyamah. If you've taken the way, away someone's land or a piece of land, then Allah will punish you the likes of it by the seven earths on the Day of Judgment. So yes, you may have gotten what you wanted in the short term, but Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala doesn't forget and Allah azza wa jal isn't heedless subhanahu wa ta'ala and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala isn't unaware. And so Allah azza wa jal will hold you to account for that. And that's the beauty of our religion. Inna ila rabbika So therefore, likewise, O Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam, O companions who are living in those early days of Mecca, O Muslims generally, know that they all of them will return to their Lord. Everyone will return to their Lord. Ibn Atiyah rahimahullah ta'ala said, the word ruj'a and marj'a and ruju' as a shokani also says, all of them mean the same thing and that is return. Ruj'a, ruju' marj'a. So Allah is saying that all of them will return. Ibn Atiyah says, meaning that they will be resurrected and brought back to life on the day of judgment. And in this, uh, Ibn Atiyah says, and in this verse therefore is a threat of punishment for those people who transgress and oppress others from amongst the people. And Imam Shawkani, rahimahullah ta'ala, 
said the same thing and he said and the fact that Allah says inna ila rabbika that Allah says to, to your lord is your return rather than saying that you will uh, that it is uh, that you will return to your lord Allah mentions rabb first and then he mentions ruj'a what is the benefit of that it's similar to uh, like what they say about iyyaka na'budu wa iyyaka nasta'in why do we say iyyaka first and then na'budu you alone we worship why don't we say we worship you alone which is how you would normally speak because when you bring iyyaka first and you point Allah azza wa jalla or you mention Allah first it is hasar it basically restricts the meaning from what could be very wide we worship and it brings you all the way down to a single meaning and that is what is mentioned and that is only you you alone of Allah do we worship you alone of Allah do we seek assistance from similar and Imam Shokani is saying to this verse your return will be to whom no to your Lord only will be your return right and that seems to be therefore you know a stronger uh, translation if you'd like that the word only even if you put it in brackets but that's like a, you know a better understanding of the verse only to your Lord is your return right to your Lord alone is your return so you won't have any other escape there's no you know like oh it's going to be kicked down to another appeal or there's another court or there's another judge or perhaps it will be lost somewhere in the bureaucracy or the admin or the or no it is only to your Lord that you will return and so that subhanallah subhanallah is something which shows to you how Allah uses the Arabic language to show the seriousness of the threat of punishment that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is mentioning in these verses. Inna ila rabbika ruj'a. It is to your Lord alone that will be your return. Even though, and again these are still verses that are speaking about the same incident, right? And Allah as we will see in verses 9 onwards will speak more specifically about the event of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam. Uh, and that is the event of the Prophet and Abu Jahl when he comes to the prayer because he will say abdan idha salla, and so on that is more specifically to do with that some of the scholars said that these verses insana, these two or three verses therefore are more generic and actually the hadith of, of Sahih Muslim uh, of Abu Hurairah begins from nine, verse 9 onwards right? the reason why I mentioned it before is because the hadith in itself mentions the verses from uh, verse 6 onwards and not from just from verse 9 but some of the scholars were saying no these first three verses are more generic they don't actually speak about Abu Jahl specifically but they speak about people in general that this is the general response and then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will give a specific example of that general response by mentioning the story of Abu Jahl from verse 9 onwards so that's the position of some of the scholars as well and as we said before either way the meaning is the same because we're not looking at, for example, is this specifically about Abu Jahl? Is this a specific story that takes place about this issue? But rather it's about the generality of the wording, the, the comprehensive nature of what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is referring to. And that is that everyone who holds or follows that trait, thinking that they are self-sufficient, that they don't need Allah, that they have everything, that they can be arrogant or show some type of haughtiness over others and dismiss them or belittle them or in other ways oppress and do justice towards them. Allah is warning all of them with this threat of punishment. It is to your Lord alone that you will have your return. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala knows, knows best. Okay, I think that's a good place to stop inshaAllah ta'ala. And so if you have any questions for me, any, any comments, any questions, then inshaAllah ta'ala we can take a couple of those now before we conclude for, for today. Muhammad says, Sheikh, I can't recall the source, but another reference says, 
it is about the rich man from Yemen. So it's good. I mean, you look at that, inshallah ta'ala, and if you can find something that let us know. As I said, I think there are some scholars who said that it is more generic. If you're talking about verses 6 to uh, 6, 7, and 8, there are some scholars who said that it is more generic. As for if there's a specific or another incident that they're referring to specifically, uh, then you can, inshallah ta'ala, feedback and let us know as well. Okay, any any other questions? Any comments or questions? So inshallah, please keep uh, posting to that database that we have on our Telegram group. So any new books that you come across, or any books that you're reading, or any books that you may have in your library, or anything that you come across in the English language to do with the Qur'an, whether that be the translation of the Qur'an, whether that's a complete translation, or only parts of the translation, like for example, certain surahs or certain ajzaa, whether that be a second category of tafsir, whether that's all of the tafsir of the Qur'an, complete tafsir, or whether it's part of the tafsir, or a juz, or a surah, or whatever it may be, or whether it's to do with the Qur'anic sciences in general. Qur'anic sciences is everything else to do with the Qur'an. So that would include tajweed, it would include qira'at, it would include, for example, uh, I don't know, for example, um, the, the ordering of the surahs of the Qur'an, the other sciences that generally come under 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 Qur'an, then you could bring all of them, inshallah ta'ala, to uh, under the Qur'anic sciences as well. The only one thing that I would say as an addition is if a book has multiple volumes, then please also write that down. You have an option there that says other comments or something like that where you can add extra comments. So for example, if you come across a book and it's three volumes, then please write down, and this book is three volumes, right? Or three volumes or 10 volumes or whatever it may be. So that we know that, okay, actually this is a book that's not just a, uh, you know, a small book, but it's actually a multiple volume book. So for example, Tafsir ibn Kathir or Tafsir al-Sa'di or some of these other longer works that are multiple volumes, uh, you can you can mention that. Or for example, if a book has only one volume that's published, but it's a multiple volume book. So for example, I don't know, someone's done the first volume of Tafsir al-Qurtubi or Tafsir al-Tabari or whatever it may be, and there's only one volume published. But we know that obviously that's only part of what's going to be, inshallah, the complete work. Then you can make a note of that as well. Say, uh, you know, till date or up till now, only the first volume has been published. So that will also, inshallah ta'ala, be helpful. So jazakumullah khairan. And inshallah ta'ala, I think we will conclude there. Wa sallallahu ala Muhammadin wa ala alihi wa sahbihi ajma'in wa akhiru da'wana. And alhamdulillahi rabbil alameen. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.